Okay, so let's consider shrinking the entire universe down so that the sun is just an inch away. How far would the next nearest star be? How far would the next nearest star be if the sun was just an inch away? The answer after this. The Jodcast, broadcasting to the moon since 2007. With Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury, Tim O'Brien, and David Alt. The Jodcast, June Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the June Extra edition of the Jodcast. And this issue is a very special issue because for the first time since the very first issue of the Jodcast, we have all three presenters in the same room at the same time. Yes, yes. we're all here. <laughs> we are, it's amazing. Actually fantastic. Yes, we're all here broadcasting from Jodrell Bank and we have another fun-packed show for you. So what do we have coming up, Dave? On this month, we have Benoit Famé talking about MOND, that's the modification of Newtonian dynamics, and Ask an Astronomer with Nick and Ian. But first, before all of that, here are the reviews with Stuart. In the reviews this month, we had a review from Evan Keane on his blog. Um, He mentioned our Rice Krispies intro Mm -hmm. and outro last month. Um, He says this is a good example of weird things that astronomers think about in their spare time. Yes, Mm -hmm. well... Well, I'm pleased that somebody listened to it right to the end of the jogger. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a secret way of testing. Yes. Better listen to the end, find out There'll what's there. There'll be a there. quiz at the end. Okay, I had some nice reviews on iTunes this month. Thank you very much to all those people who reviewed us. Um, some of the nice things that were said, someone was talking about the interview with Jocelyn Bell Bunnell and said it was presented in a breathlessly exciting way. Mm. And it seems to have gone down very well, that interview. We had someone else saying they were gripped by Jocelyn Bell's Bunnell's account of the discovery of pulsars. It was a fascinating. It's one of the, one of the best interviews we've had, I think. Yeah. We should try and line up some more like that. So, listeners, if you have any suggestions for astronomers or topics that you want us to cover, please write in and tell us. Send smoke signals or whatever it is you want to do. Yes. We've only had one person actually write to us on real paper. Yeah, a real letter. We're still kind of, I'm, I'm amazed that we, somebody still writes real letters. So I, I would quite like a whole series of postcards from exciting places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, postcards. Please send us your yeah. postcards from wherever you are, and we'll start a collection. Mm-hmm. And we'll mention you on the Jodcast. Yeah. yeah. So thanks then to all of those people, as uh, Stuart said, DK65, Ed Norrie, Country Bumpkin, Tuareg TR, and Orbiting Frog. Now, there are some very big questions that actually shake the very foundations of our current understanding of science. Nick? Yes. The question that we asked today of our guest speaker was, was Sir Isaac Newton wrong? And was he, in particular, wrong about gravity? Or at least maybe he wasn't 100% correct. So this month I interviewed Dr. Benoit Femme about MOND. So MOND is basically a modification of the classical gravity of Newton designed to uh, fit the motion of stars inside galaxies which are not fitted by the classical uh, gravity equation of Newton uh, if you don't at something that we call dark matter. Okay, so explain what we think dark matter is. So basically the, the thing is that if you observe all, all the matter uh, that, that is inside a galaxy and apply Newton's law to it, you, th- you see that the stars are moving much too fast. And so the basic idea is that this, this is because we are not observing actually all the matter which is inside a galaxy. 
So this idea m might seem quite odd that we are not seeing uh, all the mass, but in some, sen in some sense it's not very different than just thinking uh, quite a while ago that we were at the center of the universe and then realizing that we are not at the center in, uh, of the universe. And in some sense, now we could realize that the matter we are made of is not the main matter of the universe. Mm -hmm. So once again, it, it, we, we would be less important than, than we think we are. <laughs> and particle physicists actually have quite a lot of ideas of what uh, the, those particles that we call dark matter might be. Uh, at the moment, it's not detected yet, which means that maybe it doesn't exist. It's not impossible that... that so the option is, instead of suggesting a whole new kind of matter which we cannot see, maybe our understanding of how matter moves, in this case Newton's laws, are in are some way wrong. Exactly. Okay. I, w w when, when observation doesn't work, you can think that, that either the, the, the ingredients, the observed ingredients that you have put in, inside your equation are not, are not correct, or that the, the input ingre ingredients that you have put inside your equation are correct, but that your equation is incorrect. Right. So, and Mond is the second option. But Newton seems to have been right for just about everything else so far. Why all of a sudden is he wrong? Why do we need to change his laws? So what, what happens is that uh, Newton has been right for everything that we've observed until now, but it has never been tested for very weak gravity. So we absolutely don't know if we can extrapolate Newton's law, which is uh, like the inverse of the square of the distance, like everybody has learned at school, we don't know if we can extrapolate that to zero gravity. And right. what Mons tell, t tells us is that at some point, when you get below a very weak gravity, which is uh, impossible to reach on Earth, which is of the order of the angstrom per second square, so something which is extremely low, then this law doesn't go like the inverse of the square of the distance, but like the inverse of the distance. Right, so instead of 1 over d squared, it's possibly 1 over d. 1 over d, exactly. So and we test this through looking at the, the motion of stars in inside galaxies, and it works. It seems to work. That's very surprising. You, you should think this, this kind of bold modification of the law shouldn't work, uh, and it seems to work in every single galaxy in the universe. At the galactic level, it seems that this kind of modification works very well. So the problem is that when you go on, on a scale which is larger than galaxies, what we call clusters of galaxies, so uh, many galaxies that are bind together with, by, by gravity, once again you can do the same exercise and look how the galaxies move and, and then infer how much matter you should have if Mond is correct. Right. And then once again you have to add dark matter. So if Mond is correct at the galactic side, you still have dark matter at the galactic cluster, at the galaxy cluster size. On the other hand, if Mond is incorrect, it probably tells us something about how dark matter is arranged inside uh, galaxies and inside galaxy clusters. That would be my, my summary of the state of affair with, with Mond. How are we measuring the motion of stars in these galaxies? So we are just looking at the, at the spectrum of, of those stars. So you know that stars, in, at the surface of stars, you, you, have, you have elements, and those elements are characterized by absorption lines, what we call absorption lines. And, and we know, we will know very well for all of these elements how these absorption lines uh, sh should be ordered inside the spectrum. And we also know that there is something called the Doppler effect, which tells us that give, given the, ve the, the velocity of an object, you will have a shift in the placement of these Doppler lines. So basically, we know what the elements are in the, at, the surf at the surfaces of, of these stars. And then we look at the, at the displacement of those lines, and then we can infer the velocity of the stars. We do actually the same for the gas. 
and the gas is usually neutral hydrogen, which has a, a typical emission ray in that case, which is the, the inverse of what the stars does. So the stars do. So so uh, the, this neutral hydrogen sometimes, ve very rarely, uh, has an emission line. But since there is an awful lot of neutral hydrogen in, inside galaxies, then th this line is constantly seen. And we know that this line is a radio line, actually, mm -hmm. the 21 centimeter line. And we also look at how this line is displaced to know how the gas moves inside the, move inside the galaxies. And we see that the gas and the stars are both obeying the same kind of, of, of motion. Right. How many galaxies do you look at to see, to, to measure the motion of stars? So at the moment, MOND has, has, has been tested in a couple of hundreds of galaxies, mainly galaxies that are in the field uh, of, of our observations. If the galaxies are too far away, like very old galaxies at the beginning of the universe, they don't, we, we don't have enough resolution to measure the, the actual motion of the gas and the stars. Uh, so a, a couple of hundreds of, of galaxies at the moment have, be, have been tested for, for very precise rotation curves. What we call the rotation curves are, is the motion of the stars as a function of the radius inside the galaxy. Right. If the galaxies are too far away, then we see them as points, mm -hmm. and we cannot really give a precise rotation curve and, and a, a velocity as a function of radius. And so MOND, this modification to Newtonian dynamics, works for all of these galaxies? Exactly. It, it, uh, there are some galaxies where there are, there are some uncertainties. Uh, there are so, still some free parameters in MOND. Like when you observe a galaxy, you, you observe the light from the stars. But do you know what is what we call the mass-to-light ratio of, of this galaxy? So given the light that you observe, do you know what the mass should be? So this is what, what we call a free, a free parameter in the MOND fit. And for some galaxies, some of them, but probably 1%, of, so three, three or four galaxies uh, seem to have... a, a uh, a, a dubious fit, I would say. Uh, and another parameter is the distance, because since in Mont the, the fit dep de depends very much on the, the strength of the gravity, and the strength of the gravity depends very much on the distance from the center of the galaxy. And the distance from the center of the galaxy depends on our knowledge of the distance of the galaxy itself, because we measure, we measure angles, yes. and by, by trigonometry, mm. we, 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 we deduce the distance inside the galaxy. So when we have a, a poor knowledge of the distance of the galaxy itself that we are observing, then there is some, some room for, for these galaxies to fit mount if we, we change the distance of the galaxy, or if we change the mass-to-light ratio of the galaxy, for example. So there are a couple of dubious fits, but there is still some room to explain them, but the vast majority of them are just fitted with the natural numbers, the natural numbers for distance and for mass to light. There are enough galaxies for which you know their distance that you can be fairly certain exactly. distance is right. Exactly. So why are we talking about Newtonian physics here? Why are we talking about Einstein? Exactly. So that was one of the main problems of Mond for quite a, for quite a while. Uh, that there, there was no way to input this, this modification of Newton gravity inside the, the modification of gravity that Einstein has, uh, had already done for the very, very strong gravity regime. So the reason why, when we speak about motions inside galaxies, we are not speaking about Einstein, is that Einstein uh, uh, is equi equivalent to Newton where you are in the very weak field regime. And the mod modification is just a modification in the weak field regime. So in some sense, it's, modifi it's modi modifying gravity exactly at the opposite side as, as where Einstein has modified it. So you can, you can play around with Newtonian gravity in, at, the, uh, at the weak field limit without playing around with Einstein, and you can get a consistent picture. Of course, afterwards, you need a consistent theory that 
uh, at the same time predicts general relativity in the very strong gravity regime and predicts MOND in the very weak gravity regime. And that has taken quite a while, and now, since 2004, there are a couple of relativistic theories of MOND that have general relativity as a limit in the strong gravity regime and MOND as a limit in the weak gravity regime. So now it's possible to make cosmology with MOND, which, which was not possible before, because, because there was a, a lack of a relativistic theory. And it's also possible to do gravitational lensing with MOND, which is also fairly interesting, and which was a prediction which was missing from the, the previous theory of MOND. Mm -hmm. So there has been a big boost in the MOND research since those relativistic theories uh, arrived on the market, I would say. We are faced with a choice. Either we believe in a class of matter that we can't see, can't detect, or we have to break and rewrite all the textbooks talking about Newtonian dynamics. Exactly. So that, that's what that's what makes science exciting, isn't it? Absolutely. But are we allowed to? Are we allowed to change the rules? Are we allowed to? I mean, Newton's law of gravity, with the one upon d squared dependence, is written in stone. Are we allowed to do this? Are we allowed to change that too to anything that we like? Of course. Why, why wouldn't we be allowed to do it if we don't change the predictions that uh, Newton has made in the solar system, for example, since we, we, are, we are playing around with a very weak gravity regime, which doesn't make any difference in the inner solar system, where we, we know that Newton is very right, we can do whatever we, we want. In some sense, Newton didn't derive this gm over r square from any basic principle. Mm. He just came, came to, to, to think, okay, this fits. Yes, it's and an empirical. It's relation. an empirical, and, and if you take the value of g, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. So you can you can of course play around either with the, the form of the equation or with the value of g, which could well be not a constant. And and why this this precise value that that Newton has given to it? So in some sense, if Newton at the time had seen the galactic rotation curves, he would have thought my formula is wrong, and we would never uh, have heard about Newton's formula. <laughs> well, possibly. So we have if you like, a whole range of mathematical expressions describing gra gravity, from Einstein with the very strong gravitational field to Newton with the, the middling gravitational field to possibly Mond with the very weak gravitational field. Where's the dividing line between Newtonian dynamics and Mond? Where is that? Can you put it on a, on a linear scale? How far out do we have to go, say, from a source of gravity like the sun or maybe a, a big galaxy. Okay, so, 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 so in the solar system, you should go uh, about 10, 10 times further away than uh, the Kuiper belt objects. So that's pretty, pretty far away. That's, I would say, a thousandth of AU, the, uh, AU being the distance between the Earth and the sun. Right. Presumably we can test MOND physics with local objects. Is that true? Or do we have to be somewhere special? It is true. It is true in the sense that at some points in the solar system, gravity should cancel. That's what we call the, La the Lagrange points. And there, where gravity cancels, you are exactly in the very weak gravity regime of Mond. Mm -hmm. And so the position of these Lagrange points may be slightly different in Mond than in Newtonian gravity. That would be a first way to test it. And there are, there are some... some some uh, hopes that these this kind of things ca can be tested uh, in, in the near future. Another way would be to test the motion of objects in the very outer solar system. And very surprisingly, there, there, there is already a very surprising observation in the outer solar system, which is called the Pioneer Anomaly. Yeah, explain that. So the, 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 both spacecrafts that were sent by the NASA in the 70s, I think, are now in the very outskirts of the solar system. 
And by, by, the, by the same technique as measuring the, mo the, the, the velocities of the star, we can measure the velocity uh, of, the, of both spacecrafts by the Doppler shift from the signal that, that, the, that, the, that the, the craft is sending to us. And it seems that those crafts are, not, are moving too slowly uh, compared to what Newton laws would predict. So there are two possibilities. Either there is something we don't understand about the signal that those crafts are sending, uh, are, are sending to us, either Newton's law are already incorrect in the outer solar system, and actually the, the, the closest indication that gravity might not be what we think it is, might be the pioneer anomaly in the outer solar system. For the Kuiper belt objects, if we would know ver very precisely their position, distance, and motion, it would be very easy to test MOND in, 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 in the very outer Kuiper belt, or for example, uh, by looking at the motion of, of comets inside the Oort cloud, but these objects are much too faint, and the problem is that comets, we only see them when they come across us, but we never see them when, when they are in their nursery place, which we call the Oort cloud. Mm. So the problem is that those objects inside the solar system where we could test MOND are too far away to, 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 to be seen by us because they just don't reflect the light from the sun enough to, to be seen as we, we see the moon because it reflects the light from the sun. If the moon was at the, at the out, uh, in the outer solar system, then the sun would be like a point, like a, just another star in the sky, and wouldn't emit enough light for us to see it by reflection of light. So that's the reason why we have some difficulties to test the motion of, uh, of these objects. For the pioneer anomaly, why can we not explain that with dark matter? So that's, that's a good point, and the, 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 the fact is that uh, the, dark, the dark matter density inside the solar system uh, is actually very weak. So, dark matter so the dark matter density makes a huge contribution at the galactic level because you, if you put a constant density and then you put a huge volume, volume, then it makes a huge difference. But if you put the same constant density and put it in a very small volume, then the, the contribution is, is, is much lower. So that's ma mainly the reason uh, why dark matter uh, doesn't, doesn't, is not present inside the solar system. However, in the cold dark matter theories, uh, it, there, there, should, there should be uh, formations of halos of dark matter at every scale. So why isn't there a halo of dark matter at the scale of the solar system? And tho but those very small scale uh, halos that we call micro halos uh, that are actually formed in cold dark matter simulations, cold dark matter is the is the generic term to, co to, to call the dark matter that particle physicists think might be the best candidate to explain dark matter, uh, those micro halos of cold dark matter actually disrupted when they meet stars inside the, the, during their orbits inside the mm. galaxy, and they don't survive, and that's why uh, they, they are not present uh, uh, at the solar system. Of course, the presence of, of dark matter itself in these halos or otherwise is also theoretical. We're sort of saying that if dark matter exists, it has these properties. We like it. Ex exactly. It but should exist in these in this form. Exactly, but we are absolutely not sure of that. And once again, once again, the, 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 there are, there are two different uh, kind of, of, of physicists: the observers and the theorists. And, and in, in every uh, subject in physics, there is always an interplay between the, the, those two two kind of scientists. Observers just say dark matter should be there, and theorists sh say. We would hope dark matter to behave like that. If it doesn't, we'll change the nature of dark matter. <laughs> That's always like that. <laughs> Is there some other way that we can test MOND? 
So, uh, for the moment, I've spoken about the very big scales, the galaxy cluster scales and the galaxy scales, and I've just spoken about the solar system. There is another kind of scale where we could test them which is what we call the globular cluster scale. So, globular clusters are uh, sets of stars uh, that are much smaller than galaxies and that are actually orbiting around galaxies, and especially around our own Milky Way. And MON predicts that galaxy, uh, globular clusters that are in the outskirts of the Milky Way, our own galaxy, uh, should behave abnormally uh, if MON is correct. Uh, which means that if we find that there should be, uh, in the Newtonian framework, some dark matter to explain the motion of stars within those globular clusters, then it would be a successful prediction of MON. But if we see that as the globular clusters that are inside the Milky Way, the globular clusters outside the Milky Way are behaving exactly in the same way, in a Newtonian way, without dark matter at this scale, then it will be a false prediction of MOND. And as I told you, in galaxy clusters, MOND has a problem because it doesn't predict uh, that uh, the, the observed matter is enough mm. uh, to explain the motion of galaxies within, within galaxy clusters. But then you can al always invoke uh, the, the usual dark matter, even in the right. MOND framework. But in globular clusters, if we observe that they are behaving in a Newtonian way and, uh, we, uh, and MOND predicts that there, there shouldn't be a dark matter effect, then uh, this means that one predicts too much gravity and that the only way around would be to, to put negative dark matter inside globular clusters, which would be th they're a step too far and yes. which would probably kill Mond. Yes. Uh, yes. So th that, would, that, that should be one of the, the stringent tests uh, for the Mond theory. It's a good point. We should point out that um, Mond doesn't exclude the existence of dark matter. It just requires less of it. Exactly. exactly. Observations. Exactly. So when we talk about Mond and the equation that everybody knows about, the 1 upon d squared law of gravity from Newton, is the modified Newtonian version of that equation proportional to 1 upon d exactly? Or is it somewhere so between the two? In the very weak regime, it's precisely 1 over d. And there is, of course, an interpolation between the Newtonian regime and the Mond regime, which is kind of free. And you, we use galaxy rotation curves, actually, to find the best interpolation uh, between the Newtonian regime, which is the strong gravity regime, and the weak regime, which is the, the Mond regime. Uh, so, uh, as I told you, when the, the gravitational acceleration is much lower than uh, an angstrom per second square, then we are exactly in a 1 over d low. When we are much higher than uh, an angstrom per second square, then we are ex precisely in a 1 over d square low. But when we are of the order of an angstrom per second square, then we are in between. Right, right. Well, I'm sure that if Newton were alive today, he would allow himself to be corrected, and we look forward to finding out whether Mond is correct. So yeah. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. My pleasure. A very interesting take on uh, Newtonian dynamics. Yes, and we shall see whether it is right. But from big questions to slightly smaller questions... Certainly easier for Ian Morrison, our resident astronomer. Uh, the first question today comes from Stephen Witte, and it goes like this. I think one can tell that two stars form from the same gas cloud from their spectral signatures. Have any of the sun's sister stars been found? And what are the chances of doing this? Well, this is another good one. Um, our sun almost certainly formed within what is called an open cluster, and two lovely examples to see in the sky are the Pleiades and the Hyades clusters. But these are not gravitationally bound, and it doesn't take an awful long time 
for the stars to sort of go their own way through the galaxy. In fact, some people say uh, a cluster probably disperses in about 25 million years, others perhaps 100 million years. Now, of course, our sun is 4.5 billion years old, so there's been plenty of time for the stars to move around. And, of course, in that time, our sun, which orbits the centre of the galaxy, about every 240 million years, will have gone round about 18 or 19 times. So, in fact, the likelihood of having another star that came from that same cluster close to us is actually now pretty small. They tend to spread out around the same basic distance from the centre of the galaxy, but sort of spread around uh, the, the whole orbit around. Now, another point to say is, you, you ask, is how many stars like the Sun might there have been, might there still be there? Well, I know most people think our Sun is an average star. I, I tend to disagree with that. I, I say it's a typical star. But there are many, many very faint stars, the M-type stars, for example, very few very bright ones. And in fact, our star ranks pretty well. And typically, in a 1,000 stars, only around 100 of them, say 10%, will be similarish to our sun. And so in a typical cluster which might have 500 stars, you might have 50. So if the cluster from which our sun was formed was typical, there might be another 50 sunnish-like stars around, but I think spread out through the galaxy, there's not much chance we'll ever find them. That's great. Thank you very much, Ian. Those great questions from Stephen. And one from Jason Hill. Now, Jason listened to one of the interviews about the LIGO experiment, and his question is, why is it that an instrument as sensitive as LIGO isn't totally swamped by noise from seismic movements of the Earth? How are these seismic signals filtered out? Well, that's another very perceptive question. And in fact, it's not just uh, the seismology that matters. The tides, in fact, affect the positions of things as well. So what is being designed for what's called LIGO-2 uh, is really very impressive. And let me try and give you an analogy. Uh, many of you have now have got compact digital cameras, and most of them are now incorporating optical image stabilisation. And what happens is the little sensors, little gyros, that measure the, the motion of your hand holding the camera, and they are coupled to little motors that adjust some optical elements in the lens train to compensate. So even though your hand is actually wobbling a bit, the image is stable. And it's just the same thing that's actually happening in two stages of the three-stage process that's actually being developed for LIGO 2. First of all, there is an outer carriage which is moved hydraulically. And obviously you need to know what you're trying to compensate for. And a seismograph isn't a bad thing because that's measuring just the sort of thing you're interested in. So there are sensors that measure the motion of the ground on which this platform is situated. And again, then actuators drive hydraulic motors that move the platform to try and eliminate it, just like in an optically stabilized lens. So that's the first stage. That's outside the main vacuum-contained um, equipment, and that's to try and stop fluctuations due to the atmosphere, etc. Within that, there's another stage of sensors, and these, again, have things called geophones and little seismographs, and they measure the slight changes in position, and again, they do their best to compensate. And finally, the actual mirror 
that is, is acting as the test mass is supported. Uh, currently in LIGO, I think there are three um, actual pendulum systems, but in LIGO, two will be four. And these help to damp out individual ranges of, of frequencies. So the whole thing is very carefully suspended to try and minimize motion. Um, you know, just coming back to the pendulum, if you had a, a mass on the bottom of a string and you move your hand a bit, uh, the, the, the mass will probably tend to stay where it is. So that's the way you can help isolate the motion of the, of the support structure. But again, that whole support structure is, I think, has 27 servo systems to actually compensate for, 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 for fine motion of the actual ground on which the LIGO sensor is actually situated. So that's, that's quite something. All right. Well, some very interesting and excellent questions from our listeners. So please keep those questions coming in. And uh, our thanks to Ian Morrison for answering your questions. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. Thanks, Nick and Ian. Okay, Dave, at this point in the Midmonth Jodcast, we're going to insert a new segment. We've decided to allow 60 seconds for astronomical societies to promote themselves. So for the very first of these segments, we got Andrew Greenwood, the chairman of the local society based in Macclesfield. Your 60 seconds starts now. If you're interested in the night sky, I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to the Macclesfield Astronomical Society. We're based at Jodrell Bank Observatory. Uh, we have three meetings a month. The first Tuesday of the month is a workshop. third Tuesday of the month is a main lecture. And on the fourth Tuesday of the month, we have a beginner's class. Uh, all meetings start at 8 o'clock. The workshop is held at Jodrell Bank Observatory, and the other two meetings are held at Goostery Village Hall outside Holmes Chapel. Within the society, you'll find a good range of amateur astronomers, some that like to sit in their armchairs and read about it, others that will go outside and spend hours observing meteors. We also take visits to dark sky locations, one of which is in Yorkshire. We go out there for a weekend and we observe the stars without light pollution and we can just relax and enjoy. If you want to find out more about our lectures, go to www.macastro.com. And we'd like to see you here. There you are. That was Andrew Greenwood and the Macclesfield Astronomical Society. So if you'd like to include your astronomical society, telling us what you do and when you do it, drop us a line via the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net. That unfortunately brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end. Uh, it's been great being back at Jodrell and seeing you guys. Yeah, it's been great having yep. you here. And... Glad that you could make it, Dave. Oh, yes, no problem. So it just remains to thank... Obviously, you two and You're more than Ian. Welcome. So, what's coming up on the July issue, Stuart? We have an interview with Scott Fisher about the Gemini telescopes, which Nick recorded back at the National Astronomy Meeting. Fantastic. So, that should be interesting. Yes, special intros and outros as well. So, look out for those. So, we'll see you at the beginning of July. And until then, bye for now. Bye. Bye, everyone. And the answer to the question I posed at the beginning of the show, if the sun were an inch away, then the next nearest star, Proxima Centauri, would be still four miles away. Quite a walk. Just a bit. See you next month. <laughs>